0: Radio Suns.
1: Hey, everybody, it's No Driving Gloves. I don't know what happened, but about 10 minutes ago, I got a text. Hey, guys, I can't make it. So no will tonight. I don't know what he's doing. He didn't tell us. Probably out buying one of those new gorgeous Chevy trucks we were going to discuss tonight. What do you think, Derek?
0: I, I think so. Yeah. I think that's exactly what he's doing, and I don't think it's a surprise to the listeners that he's not here um, you know, especially with ten minutes notice.
1: Yeah. Either that or uh, you know, uh Pitbull and Lipu just showed up at his shop and they're gonna show him some car building experience. <laughs> yeah.
0: I asked employees.
1: Yeah. You know, uh Lipu and his wonderful uh automobiles. Um, We got a Instagram. I put put a picture of uh, Lee Poo's Mustang up that we just talked about uh, last week on the show. Put that on Instagram, and I do believe we did get a comment or two about that. uh, That there should be a dedicated segment to the magnificent—I can't say uh, magnificent—artistry and absolute genius of Lee Poo and Pitbull in every week's podcast. That was from Junkman Three Five Six. So here is our. Segment this week about Lipu and Pitbull, and uh, their Jesus. wait. Isn't
0: that isn't ju- that Junk Man handle is isn't that one of Will's AKA's?
1: Isn't that <laughs> uh, Will uh, commented also? There was a uh, I'm old. I don't get social media as much and things, but he had um, hashtag Snake Car. I don't know what uh, Big Oak Garage was saying there. There's our dedicated segment to Leapoo and Pitbull this week. Um, If you want more of that, uh, please look it up on the YouTubes or the Googles, and they will provide you more, and I'm sure we will revisit that topic in an upcoming episode when we start talking about the, you know, influential car designers. Did you do anything exciting this week, Derek? You know, honestly, not
0: really. No, actually, I shouldn't say that. I did uh, just this past weekend go... uh visit a a collection of cars um, here in the central Kentucky area, uh, about a half hour from my house. And uh, actually ran into these folks, um, father and son, you know, that were out and about in their 1929 Franklin, happened to see the Franklin parked at actually the local Dairy Queen, I guess probably about two weeks ago now, and uh, got chatting with them. Talking old cars, you know, antique cars, and they were surprised that there was someone else uh, around this area interested in antique cars. Funniest part was introduced myself, and and they introduced themselves, and turned out the son, uh, who's you know a little older than myself, actually is on a number of the facebook groups i'm on uh, and we've commented on various posts uh, you know similar posts and recognized each other's names but never knew we lived as close together as we do so i uh, went over and, and caught up with them saw a fantastic collection of uh 20s era cars everything from uh, 22 packard to uh 31 Gardner Roadster. So some really fantastic stuff. Collector of clocks and early automobile literature. So it was very fitting for myself to uh, meet these folks and to, to see their collection and learn a little bit about them. So that was, that was this past weekend and, and had a lot of fun doing that. Finally starting to find some of that uh, antique car world down here in uh, South Central Kentucky.
1: I always find that, and I know I've said it on the podcast before, that the older we get, the smaller the world is. And it's a couple of years ago now in relation to my old house. But I was in Orlando, Florida at a Lotus convention t- chatting with some people. And, oh, you know, you're from Birmingham. Yeah, I'm from Birmingham. Where where, do you, where, where are you at? And, oh, I about, about this area. Oh, we're in that area. Oh, where, about where are you at? I You know, if you go to this road and turn right, and I'm two houses down. Well, if you go to the same road and turn left, we're two houses down. You know, we live four houses apart and didn't know that we both were Lotus people and Lotus collectors and things like that. And I keep finding more and more stories that that happens with. And, you know, that's the closest one that, oh, I didn't know these people. Uh, Like I say, the older you get, the the smaller the world becomes. And it had to be a bonus to learn that they were uh, clock people also, because I don't know how often you've mentioned it. You are a... uh, I can't think of the term I know you are, but you're a clock person.
0: Yeah, I, I enjoy clocks. He had some some very cool clocks that uh, I've read about, things like that, never never necessarily uh, seen, you know, some fantastic, uh, very odd uh, early clocks and, and things like that. So it was, it was, it, and I find it, as you say, John, you know, the world gets smaller and it seems that there are a lot of antique car collectors out there that also happen to be interested in clocks and and. Mechanical devices, let's call it that all goes together, you know it's all machinery it's all gear driven it tends to be i think hobbies that cross over and can have very similar interests in, so that was that like you say it's it's a small world and it's it's always fun to run into those people
1: well it's well known that a lot of car guys are also watch people and you know we're not talking just you know, electronic Timexes. you know, the mechanical watches, and when it comes down to true car people, and I think that's how one of the ways you can tell a really true car person is, you know, they're into mechanical watches, or like you said, mechanical things, and it's not just, you know, I guess I'm wrong there, I probably alienated half our listeners, but it's, uh, I just want to say it's hand in hand, you know, Matt Farah, not only does all his smoking tire and all that stuff, he also has a watch podcast that he does, uh hour a week talking about watches. And we've got a guy at work I've mentioned before that builds his own watches, just got a new, you know, Tormock for the house and costs more than my new van, but he's now uh almost ready to start doing kind of a production watch. Everything handmade, hand machined and we'll probably have to make that a topic. Oh, I can add that to the topic list is, you know, the various little mechanical things that we can discuss. There's a really good YouTube channel where the guy talks about the history of machinery and shows the first lay the metal lathe ever made, uh, the first micrometer, things like that. It's kind of a it's a cool channel and cool topics. I can't say the guy's the most exciting person to listen to, but I think I know somebody else that probably falls into that, that you have cool topics, but he's not the most exciting guy to listen to, but we can't say bad things about him. That's why Will's not on the podcast tonight. Exactly. We're taking a break. So I guess it'll be another academic podcast there. I'm not doing much. I've just got my shop done in the garage. Podcast studio is done, with the exception of the fake backdrop. Derek noticed now that we're kind of doing some video feeds and beginning to experiment with that. And not not published might be working our way to that. I'm just kind of a uh, personal stuff and at it at work, trying to hit some deadlines and get a car to darn near completed by the first of the year. Fabricating steering linkages and trying to figure out bell cranks and stuff. Doing a uh, transmission linkage on that pre-selector gearbox I've talked about in the past. And our machinist engine builder has really been at it, doing a Connaught under dual underhead cam four cylinder. Uh, 1950s-era Formula One motor for this car. It's kind of cool, 1.5-liter, underhead cam, four-cylinder, and nothing makes sense. It's got a cartridge-type crankshaft, and it's a lot of old technology for your antique people. And you got to put the pistons and rods in, and then you've got to put the crank in. Can't remember how it goes from there. And then you put the rings on it. And then you put the pistons back in connected to the rods to come back down to made up to the crankshaft. It was almost completed. He learned that, oh, the oil pump drive has to go in right after the camshafts. And the camshafts are the first thing to go into the motor. So when you've never worked with stuff like this, I think that's what makes the restoration and this rare stuff fun and exciting. The amount of frustration, but the learning and seeing people's different engineering ideas over the years. Maybe you agree or disagree there, Derek, or you're going, I did, that's basic. You should have known that.
0: <laughs> no, I 100% agree. I think it's one of the things I enjoy most in the career path I've chosen and the collecting hobby I've chosen is the reverse engineering of some of these things. You know, one of a kind items in museum collections or like myself with the Peerless, you know, one of very few uh, V8 Peerlesses that, that still exists. There's not a lot of them out there, let's face it. Really tearing those nuances, kind of a reverse engineering what was done so that you can understand when you go to put it back together. And while you're owning it and operating it, how the thing is working. And if you hear noises, what it might be and, and when to turn the engine off, off in case something's deciding to just let go and, and dynamite the engine, Uh, you know, with anything, I mean, clocks, anything that, that I, you know, any of the little machinery that I've worked around and, and dealt with, it's that whole process of, of reverse engineering and, and understanding, uh, what these, you know, early, especially the early automotive engineers and, and some of these guys that were making technological advancements in engines and in mechanical objects, you know, what they were thinking. And you know, maybe it was a good idea, maybe it was a bad idea, but still to reverse engineer it and see what their thought process was is I think pretty cool
1: portion i always admire is when we we can't or it's so difficult to reverse engineer what they've done you know with all of our technology you know cncs and 3d printers and all of this stuff that they didn't have even 30 years ago let alone 50 70 100 years ago depending on the car you're working on and that with all of this technology we can't figure it out or we can't reverse engineer it or we have to make some concessions to what's available. It's just, I think it's part, you know, it's part of the fun of our job and how I accidentally stumbled into what, you know, Derek and I talked, we had to come up with a topic a little bit off our, right before the show with Will backing out because uh, we had a really good topic and we'll hit on it in a couple of weeks, but we'll need it to be a part of that show. And, it's just the cool historical things with our jobs and what it allows us to do and what it allows us to present to you. And, you know, that Connaught motor that I was discussing. And, you know, the car I'm doing at work, my main project, it's a 1955 Lotus Mark 10 that ran uh, the Targa Florio or Targa Floria race in 1955. It crashed out after a lap. But keep in mind, this was a 13-lap race that was roughly 960 kilometers long. These were, you know, 58-mile laps. It it had some miles under it when it it crashed out uh, due to it went off the road and then uh, uh, had a suspension failure. But the car originally ran with a 2-liter Connaught Formula One motor. And in my research, I learned exactly what motor it was. And boy, that's cool. Know the motor number and everything. And then I found the motor. But unfortunately, it's back in the original Connaught Formula One car that it originally went into. The motor was first produced. The Connaught F1 car was produced, and they were mated. And then a couple of years on, the motor was removed from that F1 car because, as history's proven, there's nothing more worthless than last year's race car. So it was just a junk car at the time. Pulled the motor out, put it in this Lotus, and it ran a few years like that. Then was uh, the, every other Mark 10, the other five Mark 10s that were manufactured all had Bristol inline six cylinders, and this car was converted to a Bristol inline six, back to a Connaught, but at this time a 1.5 liter Connaught motor, and then uh, back to a Bristol, and it lived that way from 1973 until we really started on this restoration four or five years ago uh, with the intention of trying to make it our point in time was at Targa Floria race and with the Connaught motor and due to availability and not necessarily wanting to purchase a multi-hundred thousand dollar car just for the motor and throw the rest of the car away. We stumbled across a one point, uh, stumbled across a 1.5 liter Connaught motor and, uh, we've managed to rebuild it, put it back together and, Tomorrow morning, it'll slip back into the chassis with its pre-selector transmission, and we'll go on to that. And that's, you know, it's kind of one of the cool things about the job is being able to pick that point in time and take a piece of history. And I've already restored one Lotus Mark 10. You know, there's six of them, and I've, I'll have i have two of them under my, res, you know, restoration belt. One is a Bristol uh, inline six and one with this Connaught four-cylinder. It's just one of the cool I mean, cool things about my job is that where you're thinking the topic could go, Derek, or what's something cool about your job or your pre- previous job or your previous job or any of that that you know what 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 do we get exposed to that's cool
0: well, I think and I, I may have addressed this on on the podcast before, and you know forgive me if I'm repeating myself to our listeners. I think one of the most interesting jobs I've had thus far in my career, not saying that the cure, being the curator at the National Corvette Museum is not interesting because it is, and and you know I find things every day at the museum or learn something new or get to touch something extremely important to Corvette history every day at the Corvette Museum. Having the opportunity to have worked at Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village, Dearborn, Michigan, was an standing opportunity, not only from the the car collection aspect there but being in conservation dealing with three dimensional objects yes specifically mechanical but lending a hand in other areas i've i've said it before i mean i've been involved in in either working on you know something from George Washington to helping move the Lincoln chair that's there you know there's been a lot of cool opportunities to come across these very significant artifacts that have changed the course of history over time, be it automotive history or political history or whatever. You know, I, I think back to you know, John. We can the thing. One of the things that brought us together, not just Mustang. Yeah, you know, we we talk a lot about when I brought the Mustang uh, serial one and Mustang one concept car down to the Barber Museum for the the I think it was the 40th anniversary of Mustang that celebrated there. Another project that we talked a lot about shortly after that was returning Jim Clark's uh, 1965 Type 38 Lotus Indy car that he won the 1965 Indy in back to operational condition. And so it could run at 100th anniversary of the Indy 500, as well as run up the hill at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. You know, I kind of was the lead conservator, if you will, on that uh, project. Getting into the car, there were a lot, there was a lot of speculation around it. Was it yeah, you know, we knew it was the real car, we knew it was the Jim Clark car, but no one had ever really dug into the car. How much of it was original, was the original engine in it, which is fairly rare in race cars because they usually, especially if they win a race, they usually go back to the builder, they rip the engine out, they Check it out. They figure out what the you know why did it perform so well? How you know did anything break? This that the other thing. You know so we started doing the research on it. And you know John, you were alluding to that with your your story on the Lotus you're working on. And you start looking back and when the car was built, when it did shakedown tests, all these different things that a race car goes through. You know you start finding out that the car was built. It went to shakedown tests with no one driving it other than Jim Clark himself. You know, Jim Clark drove the shakedown tests uh, in England. Then when it got over here to the States, uh, I think it was a track in New Jersey that they took it to. Uh, It's been a few years since I I worked on the car and, and researched it. So, you know, but Jim Clark drove it there. When it got to Indy, he drove. Jim Clark was the only guy that drove the car. Uh, I mean, it was just incredible to think that only one man had ever driven that car in its shakedown tests in its in its actual race. And then, you know, digging in further, it goes to the agreement was if it won the race, Ford Motor Company would own the car, not Lotus. And so Jim wins the race. It immediately becomes the property of Ford Motor Company. There's pictures of the car traveling the show circuit, and then all of a sudden there's another 82 car. There's this mystery of, well, wait a second. Why are there two different cars numbered 82, which was Jim Clark's number in the race? Yeah, you know, We start looking further and further into it. Well, it turns out Ford repainted the backup car to appear to be Jim Clark's car. But if you look very close, there's a few distinguishing differences in the paint job and the one that they basically replicated the look of was actually the one that was used in the uh, a very where the car was actually torn into all of its pieces and basically laid out on a floor in kind of a exploded view so you could see all the components of a winning indie car and that photo had led a lot of people to believe that the original Engine was not in the car, the car had been torn apart, put back together, and we were able to prove that it hadn't. And when we got to inspecting the engine, we actually found the original USAC stamp on the engine block from 1965 from Indy that proved that it was still the original race engine in the car. Yeah, you know, we then moved into kind of a different, you know, thought process on getting the car operating again all these things because we were dealing with a car that everything under the the skin of the monocoque and the body panels was 1965 finishes as it crossed the finish line and uh, so that that was you know as you say john you you track down the original engine it was in a different car you know in this case the lotus still had the original engine in it this is the I mean this is the engine the steering wheel the seat everything that Jim Clark had his hand in and hands on to do what he did in that car and really break down a barrier um at the Indy 500 which is this is the first you know rear engine um Indy racer to win the Indy 500 and since then that's all that's ever won no front engine car ever won again yeah I mean it's just it's a really Cool opportunity to have these jobs stumble across this history because sometimes, you know, John, like you say, you know, the the intent of a museum uh, as a five hundred one c three nonprofit is to collect, preserve, and interpret. And the way I, I, you know, that is to collect the artifacts that are related to our mission, preserve those artifacts and interpret those artifacts to our visitors so they can be educated. And a lot of times we're the ones, you know, when we work on these cars or work on these artifacts that really dig up the story and then, you know, have the opportunity to interpret that to our visitors and and get that deeper story out there. And I mean, I think it's just, it's, it's a blast. I mean, just yesterday, yeah, you know, we came across the 1983 analog concept dash, 83 uh, Corvette in storage, and it was hard to believe that...
1: Were you looking for your Stomper?
0: <laughs> I, I, I may have been looking for the Corvette Stomper, yes. If if you listened to our last Toys episode, that may be what I was looking for, but I stumbled across something al- not quite as interesting as the Stomper, no. I mean, there were only, as far as we can tell, maybe about 50 of these analog dashes so your standard you know gauge dash instead of the lcd you know digital corvette dash of the c4 generation i'm picking up and holding one of the only two that we know left in existence of this dash and i mean it's just incredible to think because if the if the lcd digital uh, dash did not work on the 83 concept, you know, the pilot cars and uh, wouldn't go work right for production. They were going to use this, this dash. So you're looking at basically what a lot of people never knew could have been the dash for Corvette. uh So it's, it's just those little things like that. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be a full car it could be something as small as a dash or a horn button or anything like that could have changed the course of history in a totally different direction.
1: And that's why we'd kind of do the podcast is, you know, there's little things like that. And I was going to say, is that dash possibly going to make an episode of more Mondays or something? Because it's something I didn't know existed. And, you know, thinking about it to make sense, you wouldn't have thought that maybe this would have existed or there was a different thought process. And I think that's some of the interesting things is the different thought processes that go into you know, production cars like the Corvette. I don't get those experiences because everything I work on, and to be honest, almost my entire restoration career, I've always worked on low-production automobiles. If they made more than 20 of them, I don't work on them. I, and there's been a TR6 and a few things in the past. Cunningham C3 Continental Coupe. They're just... You know, everything Lotus I work on, it's Lotus race cars, and they never make more than, you know, 15, 17, 19 of them, uh, five of them, three of them. It's, and just don't get that opportunity. I I worked on a Maxwell Q2 back in college, and they only built four four of those back in the, you know, teens. It's just, you know, you, you get to do it, and that experience happens once, and, like I said, it's one of the reasons I wanted to develop the podcast. It's not to brag about what we're doing. It's to help inform you and tell you some of this, or the listeners out there, tell you guys the backstory behind some of this stuff. Derek talks about being at the Henry Ford and all the cultural stuff that you find there. And, you know, I took a break from doing cars for a few years and got into historical artifacts. And that's how I ended up in a museum in the long run and i've mentioned briefly on the podcast but never really i think went into depth that you know for a good portion of a year i was a foreman on the restoration of the saturn v rocket at this huntsville space and rocket center and just to experience the ro- that rocket uh up close learn things about it no details uh, be able to potentially do something that Barney Stinson said was one of the impossible things to do uh, with a lady on uh, How I Met Your Mother. You guys have to figure out what episode and what I'm talking about. Being a you know I I love telling stories about making things for it, designing things even at the level of a rocket scientist and I you know ironically the guy I used to cook pizzas with at Pizza Hut. Back when I was 18 and 19 years old, he's a rocket scientist now, and I got to dabble in it for a few months, and then I go on with another experience, and I got to play with uh, so many artifacts from the Titanic. Uh, Our firm was the one that was in charge of basically preserving everything that was brought up from the ocean floor with the Titanic. But we get to tell you these stories, and you know Derek talks about the you know this very rare race motor or, or you know one off things and you know I got to handle it. oh wow that sounds great but the bedpans unused fortunately porcelain bedpans from the Titanic with tissue paper separating them that was still preserved after being underwater for 80 years you know the the things that we we are able to experience with our jobs and the history that that we find to be able to share a little bit of that every week and that knowledge is what excites me about this podcast. Did I just totally go off topic there, Derek? You want to bring me back or?
0: Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think you did. I mean, uh, yeah, we're talking about cool historical artifacts that we get to have the opportunity to work with and, and, you know, as we mentioned share with the public and you know, that's one of the reasons we do the podcast it's part of the joys of being you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh difficult uh, things to working in the nonprofit world sometimes there's um you know sometimes you bang your head about some things that you probably wouldn't have to do in the for profit world but uh, you know we we do it because there is a love for the area we go into. So there is a passion for history for me, for John, for automobiles, for machinery, for these historic artifacts. And on on my career, and I'm, you know, I'm no longer one of the really young guys in the career, but I'm still one of the younger generation in this field and in this career. And uh, I mean, basically, I've been going strong in the museum field, you know, for basically coming up on almost 15 years, you know, a good portion of those years have been dealing with artifacts um, directly, you know, either as a a conservator or as a curator. And looking back, I I keep a running list of the cars that I've had the opportunity to drive. Uh, You know, I've had the fortune to drive some of the most important automobiles in, in the course of the, of automotive history, you know, there's uh, the 1906 locomobile that won the 1908 Vanderbilt cup race known as old 16. Um, you know, I had opportunity to drive that operate that while I was at Henry Ford museum. Um, same thing with the 1903 Packard old Pacific that crossed, uh, the only, the second car to cross the United States from California to New York and as i said earlier you know you get to dig up the some of the unknown stories about these cars when and artifacts when you're working on them to to share those stories you know but to also sit where some of these at least in in my opinion important historical figures have have sat and hold the steering wheel that they held and and drive that car you also have that depth of you know, a lot of people wonder, well, what was it like for these guys to actually drive these cars and and do this? It gives you that step closer to what it was actually like to handle one of those vehicles in, you know, somewhat in a situation like what they were in. You know, it's another way that we get to experience it and share those stories and interpret that story uh, to our, you know, visitors and to the general public. And I mean, I just think, you know, it's, it's again, one of the cool things, I mean, even getting away from automobiles, uh, you know, probably one of the, the biggest non-automotive projects I did at, um, Henry Ford Museum, Greenfield Village, if anybody's been there, Sir John Bennett out in Greenfield Village is a, a jewelry store that, and, uh, that had been moved from England to Greenfield Village. And it's a massive tower clock movement in it. And it runs four figures, Gog and Magog, and uh, Father Time and Amuse. And it has a very large bell tower with a, a huge cast bell in the tower. The building was getting kind of some structural work done to it to preserve it and repair it. I mean, it had been... In Greenfield Village for, you know, seventy years, eighty years. By the time we were, you know, working on it, yeah, you know, we tore that tower clock move it, movement completely apart, documented every piece of it. Absolutely no makers marks on it that we could ever find. We have no idea who actually made the clock. It's it's a one off clock. We had to basically understand what every single component of that clock did, how it worked together, how it operated. Each gear, uh, it had, you know, basically three movements within it, you know, the hours, the minutes, and the chimes. And they all had to work together at the right, you know, be basically the gears had to be timed together. Um, it was an entire winter project day in and day out to take it apart, rebush the clock, you know, make now necessary is make sure all the gears were still in in good condition you know nowhere nothing that was going to break cause damage when we put it back together and then reassemble the whole thing and understand exactly how it all should be set so it ran together so that the figures chimed off the right you know chimes i mean it was just a very detailed and intense project one of the cool things is is that it's a sense of accomplishment i think for any of us that work with these i'm one of the few people that know how that clock completely works and how it truly operates and had that hands-on experience that the original you know clock maker for that clock had it brings you that much closer to that part of history in my i think that's Kind of what we're trying to talk about.
1: I think when it comes down to it, everything's rare, <laughs> kind of rare and cool. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We don't. I mean, we. It took me years to uh, really buy into the fact of everybody who can, would come up to me and say, "Oh, you have my dream job. I want to do that. You have the coolest job." You know, even like today on Bring a Trailer, there was a uh, there's a Rupp Dart go kart. We have a collection of those, too, you know, various go-karts from the early days of karting from something built in 1956 out of the lawnmower motor and tube frame to Rups and Twin Engine and, you know, these full-fledged racer karts. And, you know, then we build a cool little tree to put them on. And it's all to tell a story, um, you know. Of course, this is no driving gloves, so we're going to keep it car focused. You know, I strayed off and talked about spaceships and boats, and okay, I also did the Lotus airplane motor, one of two or three ever in existence, when Lotus tried sport aviation, and probably would have went there if uh, Chapman hadn't passed away when he did. But that helped launch scaled composites, which was Bert Rutan's company, and they're you know they're known for. The Voyager airplane that flew around the world and various kit airplanes. Not the BD 5. Every time I bring it up, everybody talks about BD. That's Jim BD. That is not Bert Rutan. Two totally different companies, both very cool things. And we had a couple of BD 5s that I got to do the evaluation on at the museum, and we elected that they didn't quite fit the collection, so they went on to a different owner. Get into this stuff and you can get excited about it. And I think Derek and I could probably do a three-hour show each and go, this is a cool thing I did, and this is what's cool about it, and this is cool about it. And we've got the John Surtees 1964 Ferrari 158 Formula One car in our collection, and a replica of it in the blue and white, which I've covered is was raced that way. You know, it was raced red for all but the last four races, race blue and white because Anzo Ferrari, and that's how Surtees won that championship. Cool thing about that car, nobody knows, really is not mentioned, it was the first time a Momo steering wheel was ever created and used. Alfred Momo built that steering wheel for John Surtees and it was put in that car. It still stays in our car uh, before Surtees passed. He had a fit when we took that steering wheel out of that car and put it in our replica, kind of as a joke because... I hadn't stumbled across, and nobody knew that there was actually that Momo connection in the wheel. And then when T- I asked Sertes about it, he, he told me the story. And that's, you know, it's the first Momo steering wheel. The Lotus Mark 10 I'm working on, we don't have the original wheel for that car, and we're trying to build it to that Targa Florio race in 1955. Well, the steering wheel we have is a Monolita, Lita, or a Moto Lita, excuse me there's an interesting story behind that wheel. And that's what makes this stuff exciting is the stories you find. Modalita was uh, founded by a gentleman who at 14, 15 years old really enjoyed racing. And he talked, and I'm having a little bit of trouble with the backstory on the wheel. He talked, um, uh, can't think of the company. Talked somebody into basically sweeping floors the way you got into racing or the way you got into, you know, everybody got into their dream job. I started sweeping floors and within a year or two, he was promoted to making the steering wheels for, and I cannot remember the company. And when that company shut down and this is in Britain, he moved on and made steering wheels for Connaught. amazingly. And he built, you know, all the steering wheels for every Conant race car that existed. And that's what he did. And then as Conant shut down, he started the Motolita company in, in 1958, 1959. So we know this wheel didn't come into existence until 58 or 59. Probably the early 60s is where this wheel would date to. But it's on this car that has a Conant motor that goes to this period of time when this fledgling kid was doing whatever he could to get into racing. So, you know, you kind of got the story and you got the Connaught tie-in and you got the Connaught motor in this car and it goes, it's not a total, it's not totally historically accurate, but it sure adds a dimension and another story that I can sit here and tell you about on the podcast with the exception of some key companies. And it gives you a passion or another story that we can tell you about the car and this car can live on to tell, as opposed to taking that steering wheel and putting it into a parts bin, why we try to find another wheel that looks correct, but we know is not the wheel that competed at the Targa Floria. What is that? 50, 60, 64 years ago. It's, you know, this is a wheel with some history And it kind of ties in. And while that might ruffle some traditionalist museum feathers, you know, we buy something to represent something and tell a story. And then, like I said, that just adds a story that this vehicle could tell. It's like the Paul Newman race car we have. We didn't buy it because it was Paul Newman's. We bought it because we got a good deal on it, and it happened to be Paul Newman's. We would have, you know, if we could have got a better deal on one of the other now, there's five of these Lotus X180Rs, which look like Lotus Esprit's, but there's a lot of differences. If we could have got a better deal than what we bought this one for, we would have. But no, we, we got this one on a deal. It happened to be Paul Newman's. That's the way it was restored. So it adds dimensions and you know depth to the museum. It allows us to tell that portion of Paul Newman's life. And we might have got in at the right time because... Paul Newman's becoming the Steve McQueen, and his you know racing and his car prowess and the way he was around cars is becoming known. And you know, listen to Adam Carolla's podcast CarCast; he'll talk it all up. But he was at Goodwood with the the Porsche that Newman ran at Le Mans in '78 or '79, and all the little Japanese cars that Carolla used to collect that nobody wanted, and now all of a sudden everybody wants and guess what? That's what Paul Newman raced in the 70s. It's the, you know, it's the stories behind this stuff. You know, Adam wanted race cars. He got race cars and they happened to be Paul Newman's and he became an aficionado for Paul Newman and an expert on Paul Newman. And unfortunately, even the celebrity level that Adam Carolla was, he never got to meet Paul before Paul passed away. He 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 learns every little bit about it and he, he produced a wonderful movie, Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman. It's worth any car guy watching, and um, the the movies that here I go with a plug. Chassis Media puts out are just you know wonderful on educating, because Corolla, like you know, as egotistical as he is, and he he drives me crazy, but it's probably because he's a lot like me. He he cares for the car and he cares for the ar- artifact. Yeah, he's rich and he can have anything in the world and he's got his collection of mirrors and whatever else. But the fact he's collecting dots and 210s when nobody in the world is and dots in 280s when nobody in the world was and now all of a sudden people are wanting to buy this stuff but he's telling a story and then he's putting his money out there to tell these stories. Uh I commend the guy because, you know, He's never going to make the money back that it took to produce The 24-Hour War or, you know, winning. And he's got a new one coming out about Willie T. Ribs. And it should be a fascinating movie about Willie. And why? Because he's passionate about the sport and the things. And that's where Derek and I are coming from is we've got a lot of this cool stuff in our lives. But it's telling the stories, and that's what we want to tell.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I'm, I'm going to jump back to where you started with that, John, and say, you know, uh, you were talking about you know the cool, rare, unique stuff, and then you, you know said everything, everything's rare and cool, and uh, then you talked a little bit about sweeping, you know, sweeping floors to get your job, you know, starting the job. Everything is not rare and cool, and the way I swept the floors to get into this job was, I changed a lot of tires on Model Ts, and Model Ts are not rare, and they're not. Okay, they're cool. They're not rare, (laughs) but I just thought it was funny as you were talking. I'm thinking that, like, you know, you you gotta you gotta get that job where you're sweeping the floor. And I did a lot of sweeping floor when I was the intern too. But the sweeping the floor for me was, you know, ninety hundred degree summer days in Michigan, prying Model T tires off the rims, and we're talking clinchers here and tire spoons putting them putting the new one tube in and putting the tire back on so you know we we do get to work on some rare and cool stuff but sometimes you have to work on the not so rare model t break a little sweat to have the fun we get to have uh in the career as well yeah i mean it's just as you say you know you you know somebody like adam Carolla can invest money and and all that into the the movies and that they do to tell the story and tell the history of a car yeah we tend to Invest our, our lives in it, and as as museum employees, as people we are, and uh, we may not be the wealthiest people like Adam Carolla, but we yeah we put a lot of our heart and soul into it to tell these stories to the visitors that come to the museum, and it's it's fun. Yeah, I mean it's I I haven't mentioned mentioned some stuff that I've done at the Crawford and or at the uh, the Corvette Museum, and uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming up over the next year or two. Um, that are some really rare and significant Corvettes that we're going to be uh, working on and and doing some things with. Uh, and, you know, talked a little bit about time at Henry Ford Museum. I hadn't really mentioned anything from uh, my time at the Crawford, but, you know, one of the cool, actually two of the coolest cars at the Crawford, they have the 1911 Hupmobile that went around the world. It's known as the World Touring Hupmobile and literally left detroit and did a world tour i mean it, it it's not the first car to drive around the world but it is the first car to essentially drive around the world doing a world tour in other words it didn't just directly circumnavigate the lo- the globe like the new york to paris race in 1908 but it actually just drove from major city to major city bouncing you know north south east cut back west for a while, go east again, Uh, driving around the world, made it all the way around the world and back to Detroit. Uh, And it's still in its unrestored, preserved condition. It's, It's an incredible car. And they also have... If I remember correctly, it's an 1897 Panhard Vassar, Panhard and Levasseur, French built car in pretty much original surfaces, original paint, original um, interior, things like that, believed to be the oldest uh, purpose built enclosed automobile in the world. Those are two cars with huge stories. And, you know, I, I had the good fortune to take care of those cars for a while and, and watch over them and and pr- interpret their story to the visitors of the Crawford. Uh, and it's just one of the fun things that, that happens in the career is just really getting to be exposed to some of these, you know, extremely rare artifacts. I mean, so many other things in, in the collections at the Western reserve historical society in Cleveland, where the Crawford is, is part of that. Uh, even down to uh, <laughs> believe it or not, the Hotel Ormond Challenge Cup. And uh, if if you know you don't necessarily know what the Ho- Hotel Ormond Challenge Cup is, that is the beginning of racing at Daytona Beach because Daytona Beach is actually Daytona Ormond Beach. There, there are two beaches right next to each other. And the original racing was done uh, mostly on Ormond Beach and down into Daytona Beach. This was the very first sanctioned race with a trophy that would be presented at the end. And it was against Alexander Winton, and uh, in one of the Winton race cars, and the Olds Pirate. In this race, the literally the finishing of this race, uh, I should probably look it up. But they were only something like one twelfth of a second apart. It was it was ridiculously close finish. I mean, you, you talk about photo finishes in racing history. The first sanctioned race that o- Ormond Beach was basically a photo finish um, with Alexander Winton winning by literally a hair. He won the trophy, and it eventually, you know, he would donate a lot of his stuff to, uh, you know, the what would become the Crawford Auto Aviation uh, Museum, uh, the Thompson Auto Album. And I mean, this is when, when you pick this thing up and, and hold it as an artifact, I mean, beginnings of what is now essentially the Daytona 500. And I mean, how, you know, how much more history can something hold in automotive racing than that? I mean, it's just, it's an incredible artifact and you know, it's just, it's amazing to think of what happened that day that has led to where we are today.
1: I'm not sure where to to continue. Like I said, we could sit here for hours and tell these stories and add just a topic to touch on. And I guess to take 60 minutes and fill you in on a little of the backstories of the little projects Derek and I are, you know, dealing with and have dealt with and some of our knowledge. You wanted to expand on some of the stuff, or ask. I mean, if, hit the Barber Museum website, or hit, heck, hit Big Oak Garages website, or the National Corvette Museum, or Derek's case, the Crawford Auto Auto Aviation Museum. I mean, any of the places we worked before, the Henry Ford, and ask some questions, or any. I'll be honest, any museum. You know, if you, you know, been to the Lane, or if you, you know the Blackhawk collection or America's car museum in, you know, Tacoma, anything. If you've been anywhere, ask some of the questions about the story. You know, if you want to know the backstory, hey, why is this? Why do you guys think if we don't know the answer, we'll find the answer, you know, it'll give us an excuse to reach out. Uh, some of the interview shows we've done lately are great, but it'll give us an excuse to reach out and say, hey, you know, so-and-so, you know, you, you guys are now restoring a Lotus 29 at the IndyCar Museum uh, or the Indianapolis Motorsports Museum. Can you tell us a little bit more? What are some of your challenges? And we'll bring these people into the you know podcast. And, you know, it's again, it's not about Derek, me, or Will. It's about you, the listener, and helping educate you and telling you some interesting stories. God knows you know, I listen to a dozen, to probably a dozen and a half podcasts a week, different things, just, to get more information and you know i drop them in here Uh, i dropped some of the car cast stuff you know this week and cars yeah a few weeks ago and uh that that's that's part of it is you know the knowledge that's why you know i listen to these people i hope that's why you listen to us is to to expand your knowledge and you know it's us bringing the museum to you audibly and uh just give us some feedback on this episode or, t- you know, tell us what you want and we'll go out. We'll find it. I enjoy that legwork. That's I'm going to be honest, out of everything, all the cool stuff we've talked about today from, you know, rocket ships to cars to, you know, seeing some guy's recreation of the Lotus submarine. That's not, that's not what's fun for me. The fun for me is the research and pursuing and knowing a goal. You know, that's what restoration does for me. Every day I go into work and I never do the same job twice, and I do what I want. I know there's a list of things that have to be done, but I get to choose the order. And, okay, today I want to build a transmission linkage. Tomorrow I want to, you know, run a fuel line. And I'm doing that because I don't necessarily want to work on an Excel spreadsheet until Thursday. There, There's the biggest perk of my job. I get to do what I want and I get to have fun with it. You know, I, I do have bad portions of jobs, just like everybody else. Uh, But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of good ones. And, you know, even when I was new to the industry and you go in and boss, what do you want me to do? It never was the same thing two days in a row. And some days sanding on a car for hours felt pretty good. Some days it stunk, stunk, but you got it done and you enjoyed it. Where are you at on that?
0: I think there's the one thing that I I would say in in closing here and wrapping up. You know, we've we've talked about the fun we get to have, and I think working in a collections department. Whenever I bring in a new staff member uh, onto my team, you know, I always tell them we always yeah you know, we have we have a lot of fun in collections. You know, we're we're typically a, a group of people that enjoy our jobs. Yeah, uh, you know, we're we're doing it to. Collect, preserve, interpret this history, but I don't want that to able to, to, you know, you say if you have questions, reach out to us. One thing I will say is that there is always certain artifacts or there are always certain artifacts that anyone in a collections world has a certain reverence for, you know, one of the probably more emotional sides of uh, the job, you know, we talk about the fun and the cool things we get to do. There are times where we have items in our collections that are historically important for other reasons. I mentioned the Lincoln, you know, the Lincoln rocker, the Lincoln chair that at Henry Ford Museum, that is the chair that uh, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in. They have the limousine that, you know president john f kennedy was assassinated in and i i can tell you you know that is when we have to care for those artifacts no one jumps into that lighthearted uh you know when we went to move the lincoln chair everyone took a moment before even putting their hands on that chair the kennedy limousine at henry ford museum no one gets in the back seat of that car even though Uh, You know, other presidents rode in that car after it was rebuilt and it was used uh, post Kennedy's assassination. There's a certain reverence for that vehicle that I've sat in the front seat of it to, you know, work on it or move it a little bit in its display area to do something, to do anything with the cleaning of the back area of it. You know, we basically would open the doors and simply reach in. You know, there is a certain um, level of respect and and reverence to some of these artifacts, you know, even down to, you know, something as important as Kennedy or or, or the, the, you know, Kennedy limousine or the Lincoln chair. But for myself, one of my favorite presidents, Roosevelt, a lot of the things he did were uh, absolutely amazing. I, I find him to be an interesting person and have an interesting history. The Henry Ford Museum happens to have Teddy Roosevelt's carriage. I always had my own personal respect for that car because of, or f- for that carriage because of the man who rode in it. Uh, and that was kind of from, from more of a personal aspect, but so we do get to have fun with some of these things and enjoy big, you know, these parts of history that are really cool and fun. But, you know, on the flip side, we occasionally have that moment of, uh, yeah, you know, remembrance and reverence for artifacts that hold a uh, more somber meaning to them in history.
1: I'm not going to go on with that. I think I'm just going to go ahead and let this episode come to a conclusion. I'm having a hard time wrapping this episode up. There's just so much more to say. Um, you know, this is the final episode before Christmas. We'll join you uh, again on uh, December 31st. <laughs> what, what a day to have a episode release. With that, I'm going to say goodnight and talk to you all in two weeks.
0: See you guys later.